Well, good morning, New Life Church. Good to be with you again on this Lord's Day. I hope you had a, had a good week, a week of much joy and less anger. Well, this morning we continue our study of the Ten Commandments. Um, we'll be considering the, the Seventh Commandment this morning. Um, so if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And as I said before, we cannot properly relate to our fellow man until we first properly relate to God. One must follow the other. Uh, many people have made a terrible mistake thinking that they can keep the last six commandments without, with, with largely ignoring the first four commandments. Um, you know, in the Gospels, in Matthew 23, Jesus summarized the last six commandments in what he referred to as the second great command. But then he also summarized the first four commandments um, in Matthew 22 by calling them the first and great command. And then he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if we try to keep the last six commandments while ignoring the first four commandments is, is really being, being hypocritical. It's like what the Pharisees were doing um, that we learned about last week. Um, so we, we cannot be righteous in God's eyes unless we are right with Him. So this morning again, we're going to look at a very sensitive subject, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So let's read from Exodus chapter 20. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 14 um, so that we would remember the context. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. Father, as we come to this commandment, Father, we pray again that your Spirit would teach us. We ask, Lord, that the Spirit would open our eyes. We ask that He would open our hearts. Father, that we would not come to these commandments in a, in a self-righteous way, much like the Pharisees did. Father, that we would be willing to hear what you have to teach us this morning. And we'd be willing, Lord, to confess our sins. We pray that you would grant 
the necessary repentance that we need this morning to be right with you. And especially, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's table later on, we pray that we would not be coming to you, trying to worship you with unresolved issues, unresolved sin, Father, that we would be coming with a reconciled heart, a contrite heart, Father, that you would accept our worship this morning. So, Father, this is a sensitive subject, and we pray, Father, that you'd, you'd help us to be sensitive in, in hearing what you have to say to us this morning. And this does affect every area of, of our lives as, as a family unit, as a church, um, in our children's lives, in our grandchildren's lives to come. And we know, Lord, the church is only as, as healthy as the family unit. So we pray today, Father, that you would help us see the importance of this for us today and that you would do the necessary changes that need to be done for the sake of your great name, for the sake of your glory. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Before coming to the Middle East, I remember a conversation I had with a pastor friend already ministering here. And I asked him the question, you know, does the fact that the ladies who wear, that, that wear an abaya and, and a niqab, does it help with not being tempted to lust? And his response was very honest. And he said, well, not actually. Even when the whole body is covered, those eyes can be very appealing. And it's all it takes to cause a man to lust. You know, temptation has always been around. And it doesn't matter whether we live here in the, the Middle East or, or in any other country. Temptation is there. As long as we are in this flesh, as long as we are living in this flesh and Satan is still around us, we will always be tempted to sin. And there would always be those things with which the devil would use to generate lust and which the flesh would, would pounce upon to, to initiate that temptation. And I think it's fair to say that in, in some societies in which we, we come from, temptations are so much more rampant and so much more visible and so much more common because of our rejection of God and His biblical ethics. And we live in a day and an age where adultery is celebrated. And adultery is in many of our, our movies and our television programs and even in our songs that, that we listen to on the radio. And the world often portrays marriage as the most miserable situation in which anyone could be imprisoned. And direct temptations for, for marital unfaithfulness and sexual impurity are all around us and continually pressing in on us wherever we are. You know, it's become necessary in our modern age to, to define what marriage is, biblically. One man with one woman. Not one man plus one man, or not one woman plus one woman, or not one man plus, plus two women. I mean, that's how, that's how wicked our societies have become. You know, mass media lures us with all types of products using, using sex to, to sell them. You know, they glamorize 
illicit pleasure wherever you look. You know, sex crimes are at an all-time high. It's divorce. There's infidelity and all types of perversion that are being praised today in our modern societies. They are subjects for humor in our societies. Pleasure first philosophy is is rampant. And marriage is threatened as, as we know it, as it is biblically defined. And faithfulness to one's spouse is laughed at and ridiculed and mocked. And we could spend hour after hour just trying to illustrate this. But it's not necessary, is it? You know it is all around us. And I have to even avoid looking at the the magazine racks in our shopping centers. Not only what's on the the outside, but even what is on the inside. Avoid it. I have to avoid it completely. It It is all around us, even here in the Middle East. But let me start this morning with what the command forbids. What the command forbids. We look at verse 14. It simply tells us that you shall not commit adultery. Well, the Hebrew word for adultery used is one that specifically refers to intimate relations with a spouse or fiancé of another that belongs to somebody else. And in giving this commandment, God is drawing a line. He's drawing a line around the sanctity of marriage. And he's commanding that the line not be in in any respect crossed. This is the standard that he is setting for us. And God is saying, do not take someone to yourself that does not belong to you through marriage. And once you enter into the covenant of marriage, do not give yourself to anyone other than to your spouse. And the definition of adultery, according to the the Miriam Webster Dictionary is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner. You know, several years ago, we wouldn't have to have defined that. I wouldn't have to have given you a, a biblical definition for that, of what adultery is. It was commonly understood what adultery is. And there are people who would try and defend themselves. And some people would argue and say that this law here in Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 only condemns adultery. I remember talking to a friend who was living with his girlfriend before they had got married. And I challenged him on this. And his response was, well, that he was not married, his girlfriend was not married, And therefore, they were not committing adultery. And the commandment in the Bible says specifically, do not commit adultery. He said, this is an adultery, because neither of us are married. And of course, technically, he was right. Technically, specifically, this command prohibits adultery. And they said, well, technically, then we are not sinning. Well, I explained to him that fornication and adultery equally constituted a failure to hold marriage in honor. And what they were doing, even though it wasn't adultery, it was fornication as the Bible defines it. 
It was fornication as the Bible defines it. Sexual immorality outside of the marriage covenant. And both of these sins fall equally under the condemnation of God. Look with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. I want to encourage you today. We, we're going to be looking at a number of verses. And a lot of these verses I haven't put on the screens because I don't want to tempt you to be lazy, okay? I want you to be looking in your Bibles. So Hebrews chapter 13. This is the verse that I, that I showed him in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, the New American Standard translates the words sexually immoral as fornicators, and it's the same meaning, it's the same root word. Those who are sexually immoral are fornicators, and I explained to this friend of mine, that biblically what they were doing was not called adultery, but rather fornication, which is the biblical term for sex apart from marriage. And I explained that the intention of this passage of Scripture is that all people everywhere honor God's institution of marriage, that they would honor God's institution of marriage, that there wouldn't be sex outside of marriage. And the writer of Hebrews here mentions fornication. He mentions sexual immorality as a failure to hold marriage in honor. And why does God call us to sanctify marriage by giving us a command? And that leads to our next point this morning, the basis for this commandment. The basis for this commandment. Turn with me to Genesis. We're going to look at a few verses here. In Genesis. And most obvious, the most obvious reason for this commandment is because God invented marriage for the good and the happiness of humanity. That's the most obvious answer. Now, when we talked about the, the sixth commandment, I affirmed that the basis was in the story of man's creation in the first and second chapters of Genesis. We saw that last week. And the same story also gives us the basis for God's commandment for the, for the seventh commandment against adultery. So the Bible tells us that God beheld His creation and He saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And so, in Genesis 1, verse 27, male and female, He created them. So after He created the first woman from man... He brought them together as husband and wife. And look at verse 31. God declared that his creation was now very good. It's the first time you see that mentioned. It was very good. You can underline it. And Moses wrote, look at chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in these words, we have the three essential elements that constitute a marriage before God. Firstly, have a look there. A man with their consent steps out from under the, the legal and formal authority of his mother and father. And today we symbolize this through a public wedding or public ceremony before our friends and our, and our family. 
And secondly, the man is, is joined. He's literally glued in a permanent bond to his wife with the consent of his or her parents. And we symbolize this through the father giving the bride away in our wedding ceremony. That's what, what it all symbolizes. We see two public, publicly exchanging vows to one another before God. And finally, we see the two becoming one flesh physically. This is physical intimacy. One in life, one in legal property, one in name, and, and one in kin. And we recognize this in our culture through a marriage license. Signed and, and witnessed and filed with the state government in, in accordance with, with its laws under the authority of God. Jesus himself quoted these words of Moses in Matthew chapter 19. He said, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. So right here in the beginning of the Bible, the institution of, of marriage has been established. And God gave this wonderful covenant to men and women for their happiness and for their fulfillment. He has blessed it. And humankind would not be what God intended it to be without this institution of marriage. And so God issued this commandment to protect this covenant of marriage that we see right here in Genesis. And the happiness and fulfillment is meant to, to bring about as an obedience from this commandment. And I believe that the marital happiness God intends to protect through this commandment is described beautifully in Psalm 128. If you turn there with me, Psalm 128. In Psalm 128, verse 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Verse 3, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Look at verse 6. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon you. This blessing that the psalm is describing would not be possible without the institution of marriage. Without God commanding us to protect this covenant we would not be able to enjoy this fruitful blessing of marriage. And the most important basis for this command that I could think of is, is based in the very character of God Himself. And all of the commandments have their ultimate basis in the character of God. We know that lying is wrong because God is holy. He doesn't lie. And ultimately, God is a God of truth. And murder is wrong. We know that because ultimately God is the, the giver of life. And the same is true for this commandment right here. Adultery is wrong ultimately because God is a God who is faithful. Because God is a God who is pure in His love towards His children. 
Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, the Bible communicates Jesus' relationship with his church through the picture of marriage. And Jesus himself is presented to us as a faithful bridegroom who is faithful to his bride. And Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what he says in, in verse 22. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So God we know is faithful. God we know is pure in his love for us. And he likewise demands this faithful and pure love in our relationships with him as well as with each other. James wrote of this in his letter to Christians who were flirting with, with worldly values and worldly pleasures. And he called them adulterers. He called them adulteresses because they were being unfaithful to God. They were being unfaithful to God. He says to them in James 4 verse 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You know, as God himself is faithful and pure, and as he insists that we be faithful and pure in our love for, for him. And he demands that we model this, that we demonstrate this faithfulness and purity in our marriages, in this family unit that, that he has ordained. And this really stands as the, as the ultimate basis for this commandment here in Genesis, in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's look at my next point this morning. Let's look at the implications. Let's look at the implications. Let me show you how applicable this is to us in our modern age. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Last week we looked at the same passage, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at the same sermon that Jesus gave to his followers and to the Pharisees that were there gathered around. And what Jesus is doing throughout this chapter, he's contrasting the righteousness the Pharisees thought that they had 
with his divine standard. Remember, they were hypocrites. They were making their own standard. And God is saying, no, this is the standard here. And last week we saw verses 21 to 26. And we saw the illustration that Jesus gives with regard to murder. But now he gives a second illustration in verse 27 to verse 30. And the illustration is, of course, how the people had lowered the law of Moses. And here Jesus is lifting it back up again in order to destroy their self-righteousness. Look what he says in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is talking about a radical amputation here. This is a spiritual amputation he's talking about. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Remember, this is, this is what their tradition was teaching. This is what the rabbis taught. There was nothing wrong with that. They, they got it from, obviously, the, the Old Testament, but they would add on their traditions to that in the, in the Talmud. So this was their traditional teachings that Jesus is referring to. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were, were teaching. And he says, you have been told that this is God's standard. If you just don't commit adultery, you're fine. If you just don't go around sleeping with other people's wives or husbands, you're fine. That was their standard. Look what Jesus says in verse 28. Look what he, the word that he starts with in verse 28. But. The word but. Underline that word, but. The Lord is making a statement here. That's not all he's saying. He's saying, I say to you that everyone who looks, who looks at a woman to lust, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus is saying the standard is too low. It's not just about sleeping with other people's spouses. He's saying, this is my standard, the divine standard. This is God's intended standard. And remember, God is concerned with their heart attitude. There was a problem with these Pharisees. There was a problem with these scribes who called themselves religious, who were the, the teachers of the Old Testament. They had a heart problem. And in verse 29... There in Matthew 5, he gives them the solution. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In other words, you're a lot better off to, to cut off your arm or pluck out your eye if it leads you to sin. If it leads you to sin. And remember, sin is not some, something that we do always on the outside. It's not always external. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. We sin in our hearts. Just by looking at somebody with a lustful intent is sinning God's eyes. So he's saying, spiritually amputate that. Get rid of that. Don't be doing that. 
And the second example that our Lord uses here is that of adultery. That of adultery. And he's, already, he's saying to the self-righteous people here, you can't say because you didn't have sex with a married person that you're all right. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying if you've lusted in your heart, if you've lusted in your mind, if you've ever desired to commit the sin, you're a sinner. You're not righteous. And you cannot claim righteousness before God. Remember in verse 21... In 22, they said, you shall not commit murder. But Jesus said, whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of hell. He's saying, I'm telling you, it isn't just a matter of whether you do the murder. It's the issue of what you're feeling in your heart. In verse 21 and verse 22, his illustration was on the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. But here in verse 27 and 28, His illustration is on the seventh commandment. And the underlying principle of the the sixth commandment that we saw last week is obviously the sacredness of life. And the underlying principle here that Jesus is referring to is this basic unit of life, which is marriage. Which is marriage, which God has instituted. And he gives us his two examples. He speaks of the sanctity of life. And now he's talking about the sanctity of marriage. We talked a little bit about this on our, on our home group this week. You think about anger. And you think about lust. These are the, one of the two most powerful emotions that a human being can, can feel. Anger and, and sex. They are two very powerful things that can destroy relationships if we are not willing to see them as sin and see them as God sees them and deal with them as God wants us to deal with them. These experiences, these emotions reach deep down into our human experience. And they clearly illustrate the sinfulness of man. And that's what Jesus is doing here very effectively with these so-called righteous Pharisees. We've all experienced the temptation of anger. We've all been angry, I'm sure, at one point or another. We've all lusted at some stage. It's a very powerful, very common emotions. And they reach deep down into the basic instincts of of all mankind, male or female. And those Jews who were sitting on the hillside in Galilee, just as we are gathered here today, hearing the Lord Jesus confronting them about their anger and about their lust within their hearts, would have to admit, would have to admit by by virtue of their own conscience that they indeed were sinners. And the fact that they never killed anybody or the fact that they never actually did the act of adultery didn't excuse them. It didn't exonerate them from the sinfulness of sin which reigned in their hearts which reigned in their hearts. You know, our societies are are literally sex-mad. And when we come to a passage like this, it's almost archaic. It's almost like dinosaur-like speaking about this because we've come to accept the the, the sexual attractions that that our societies are are made of. We've become so preoccupied with, with sex. 
it's, it's, it's hardly worth explaining anymore. Now, C.S. Lewis, he had a great illustration, and I've copied this for you. And he says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on a stage. And he says, if that doesn't indicate how warped our view of sex and our view of womanhood is, imagine it this way. Suppose you went to a country where you, were, where you could fill a theater by bringing in a covered plate on the stage. Try and imagine that. And then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everybody see just before the lights went out. And there it contained a mutton chop or a piece of bacon. Wouldn't you think that something had gone wrong with their appetite for food? Something has gone wrong in our societies with this appetite that we have for sex. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is confronting the Corinthian church about their appetite for sex. He's confronting them about their mutton chop mentality, just like C.S. Lewis is talking about here. Their mutton chop mentality. In chapter 6, verse 13, you know, this Corinthian church was preoccupied with all things sexual. You just read chapter 5, the beginning of that. A young man was sleeping with his father's his father's second wife. There were, there were all these weird things going on in this Corinthian church. Sexually immoral, it says, so much so, much so more than the, than the pagans around them were doing. This Corinthian church was, was way off the course. And he writes this very strong letter to them. And he says to them in chapter 6, verse 13, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Those are inverted commas, okay? So he's, he's referencing that. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for the food. But then he says, And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Food for the body and the body for foods. This was a little phrase. This was a little a proverb that they, you would throw around. This was a common saying. And someone would come along and say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's, that's evil, talking about their sexual immorality. And, and they would argue, well, food's for the food and, and body is, is for food. And what they, they mean is, it's just biology. Our bodies are just biological. And sex is a biological thing. And that's all. That's all that it is. It's just a biological thing. Food's for the body, and the body's for foods. It's just biology. It's like sleeping. It's like eating. It's like drinking. And they were making, making excuses. They were justifying their, their sexual immorality. Nothing wrong. We're just human. It's just natural after all. Well, the rest of the verse says, God shall destroy both it and them. Because the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. The body is not just biological. It's spiritual. And it belongs to God. And he says to the Corinthians, 
You just can't give your body over and say it's only biology. That is not true. This is the mutton chop philosophy, this mutton chop mentality that is still here today. It's not new. It's gone back all the way from this Greek and Roman philosophies. This is the playboy philosophy that we have today. It's just biology. It's just a body. This is perversion, folks. This is perversion of what God has created holy. The body is not for fornication. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that your members, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! I mean, would you do that? No, of course not. Look at verse 16, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. It isn't just food for the body and body for the food. And he says so, in, look at verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. That's what we have in, our King ja- in, our, in the ESV. But the King James translates that as fornication. Flee fornication. Now, the Greek word for fornication is pornea. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Pornea. And that's where we get our English word pornography from. It simply means evil sexual behavior. Evil sexual behavior. And the view that sex is only a biological urge and that you've got to enjoy it while you can, don't be restrained, that that philosophy really brought about the the sexual revolution that's happened in, in the U.S. and other Western countries. And it's that same philosophy that has brought about the sexual perversions in our own societies today. And that's why we're struggling with all these strange marriages and these strange relationships that, that people are defining on their own. Now, this mutton chop perversion has and is shattering homes. It's destroying families. It's ruining individual lives. Men swapping their wives, wives swapping their husbands for the sake of pleasure. Relationships have been replaced with perversions. God has wonderfully designed sex as a part of of human life. We need to teach our children God's plan for this. Don't let our children be taught these things by the perverted world around us. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul discusses something of this. And he says, Now let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. He's talking about the physical act, the physical relationship here. And he says, Likewise, also the wife unto her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, 
that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, he's saying here, you have every right and you have every responsibility to give your body to each other in the fulfillment of your sexual desires. There's nothing wrong with that, he says. But it's within the covenant of marriage. It's within the covenant of marriage. How God designed it. This is God's design. Look at Proverbs with Proverbs chapter 5. Turn there with me. Proverbs chapter 5. A few verses that we're going to look at here. And God deals here with the same thing that Paul spoke about to the Corinthian church. He talks about sex here in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 5. Proverbs 5. Verse 15. The scriptures say, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, This is a metaphor for your wife. Enjoy the married covenant. Your your marriage, he's saying. Stay away from the harlot. Stay away from the strange woman that will destroy you. That's what he's trying to teach his young sons here. Look at verse 16. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Don't give, don't give what belongs to your wife to strangers. Don't give to your husband. Sorry. Don't give to other people what belongs to your, to your husband. This is for the covenant marriage. Look at verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Look at verse 19. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible doesn't condemn sexual intercourse. It doesn't condemn sexual desire. It defines it. It defines it for us. To be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. How God has ordained it. Not how men define it, folks, but as God defines it. God has designed this. He's given, He's blessed His physical relationship and He has sanctified it. It's not evil. In the Song of Solomon, God goes on and on in that wonderful letter. We don't have time to read it, but I encourage you, go home and read the Song of Solomon's. And, And you'll see this inspired way this letter is written about the beauty of, of human love in, in a marital situation. You know, it's pure and it's right. But our world has made a mutton chop out of it. Our world has made a mutton chop out of what God has made beautiful. We have perverted it. And in conclusion, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus addresses these, these Pharisees. I want you to notice the very last verse in this chapter in Matthew 5. Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
What Jesus is saying is that my kingdom demands perfect righteousness. And obviously they couldn't keep the laws. They couldn't attain this perfection. They had to admit that they were sinners. And that's where Jesus wanted to take them all along. He wanted them to understand this. There's no remedy for their sinful situation, for their perverted minds. And of course, he wants to drive them to the, to the righteousness of himself, to the righteousness of Christ. And so that's what he's doing here. He's presenting a definition of sin. He's forcing them to see their need for a Savior, knowing full well that he himself will offer himself as that Savior. But they need to recognize that, that in themselves, they have no ability to rescue themselves from this power that's controlling them, that they are slaves under. They are in desperate need of someone who can. And Jesus is that someone. Listen to what John MacArthur says. Unless one understands the truth about sin, he can never understand the truth about salvation. You cannot understand the meaning of salvation unless you understand the meaning of sin. You see the Pharisees and the scribes had such a superficial view of sin that they were able to accommodate it with a superficial view of salvation. They saw sin as simply a matter of what we do. Therefore, salvation was a matter of what we do. So in their minimal definition of sin, they were left with a minimal requirement for salvation which they then assumed they themselves could accomplish. We need to understand the the wickedness of our perverted minds and our perverted hearts if we are ever going to be right with God. That is the first step, folks. That is the first step. If we are ever going to see our need for a Savior, we need to recognize our sin. The deeper the disease, the greater the remedy. And that's the whole point. That's what Jesus is teaching you. As long as people think of sin superficially, as long as they think of sin in a minimal type of way, as long as they make light of their sin, then salvation is a minor thing too. Think about this for a moment. Do you minimize your sin? Pornography. Do you go into the internet and say, well... There's no problem with this because my wife is not letting me have sex with her. I'm going to go into the internet. Do you minimize your sin? Do you try and justify it in front of God? God will understand. God will not understand, folks. He's given us His definition of sin. He's told us what sin is. He tells us when we we lust in our hearts, when we lust in our mind, we are adulterers. Thomas Watson one of the English Puritans, he said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You know, people who play on the internet and go to these chat rooms and speak to people that they don't know and allow them to enter into their marriage covenant, into their marriage bed, are playing with sin. Even if you haven't physically met that person, they are playing with sin. 
Sin is no longer bitter for them. They've become numb to how God defines sin. And that's why we need to look back at these commandments as God defines them. Christ is no longer sweet. Christ is no longer our Savior. If we say we have no need for a Savior, if we justify our sin, if we make our sin minimal, of course there are people who are self-satisfied and smug and think that because they, they don't do certain things and that they do other things that they are justified. And that's because they never really examined the evilness of their hearts. That's why it was so necessary for Jesus to preach a sermon. And that's what the Lord Jesus is forcing men to do as he, as he speaks this sermon here. Now, holiness for God is always a matter of the heart. In Proverbs 23, the scriptures say in verse 7, As a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. So is he. And that's where the divine evaluation takes place. Right here in your heart. Right here in your heart. Before you even murder, before you even think of it, before you even commit adultery, you think it in your heart. Before you fornicate, you think about it in your heart. You entertain it in your heart. Before you ever steal, it happens in your heart. And it's the heart that, that spews out this, this garbage that defiles a man. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Well, God knows it, folks. God knows your heart this morning. And God is asking you to examine your hearts. As we come together to the Lord's table, that's exactly what we need to do. Make sure our hearts are right with God this morning. Don't be making excuses for your sins. Man is a sinner. And that sin is deep down in his heart. It's his very nature. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you say you are without sin, you are calling God a liar. We are powerless to change that. We are powerless to change that. But then God comes along. God comes along. And He offers us a relationship by which He and, and He alone will change our hearts. God said in Ezekiel 11, I will give you a new heart. He says the same thing in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart. I will take the, the, the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And that's what we need. We need a new heart. And that's what Jesus wants those who, who listen to hear. And are you hearing this morning? If Jesus came into your life, you have a new heart. If you've repented of your sins and asked Christ to forgive me, He has given you a new heart. He's given you a new life. He's given you a new nature, the Scriptures say. And you don't need to run after the sins that you were once enslaved with. You are free. You have the victory that belongs to Jesus. You're no longer a slave to your sin. And you can know that victory. You can know that victory if Christ is your Savior. But let me just address the unbelievers this morning and we will close. Until you see your sin as Christ sees it, you will never see your need for a Savior. Until you see your sin as Christ sees it, you are not saved. 
If you're enjoying your sin, you are not a believer this morning. You're a slave to your sin. Until you agree with God, as God defines sin, you are in need of a Savior. Don't be like the Pharisees. Now call upon the name of the Lord. Repent of your sins. And Jesus says He is willing to forgive your sins. He is willing to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you would come to Him this morning, if you would repent as He calls you to. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for speaking to us and ministering to us through Your Word this morning. Father, we are all sinners. But we are so grateful, Lord, that You did not just give us what we deserved. You didn't just destroy us. You didn't just throw us into hell as we deserve. Instead, You gave us Christ who took on our punishment, who paid the penalty for our sins. For every wicked thought we have thought, Lord, He paid for. Every wicked and perverted act He paid for. And thank You this morning for that substitutionary atonement. And Lord, as we come to the table, as we hold these elements, we pray that we would not take this moment lightly. We pray that we would see the blood that was shed for us. That we would remember the body that was torn apart and suffered that cruel death that we deserved. And Lord, we would fall at your feet in worship. So do the work that needs to be done today, Lord, in our lives. May we not leave this room this morning without knowing that we are reconciled to you. Save the lost, Lord. Sanctify sinners. Draw your sheep to yourself this morning. For the sake of your great name we pray. Amen.